Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Robots Radio presents... In 1944, director Billy Wilder and star Fred McMurray gave the world a mysterious foray into murder, mystery, and a bit of film noir. In 2020, we return skeptically to a fan-favorite bourbon brand. The film is Double Indemnity. The whiskey is Old Granddad 114. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1944 classic, Double Indemnity. Brad, how are you doing today, man? I, I'm doing really good. I got to see you today. Yeah, we actually met up today, halfway between where we live. We live about two hours apart. We had to swap whiskeys for the next few weeks, so it was good to see you in person, my friend. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a terrible thing. Hopefully the fates will draw us back together at some point, but for now we have to meet in the parking lot of a Cracker Barrel and, and just hang out and talk. <laughs> well, and in addition to seeing you, we also got to both watch this movie. I have made no bones about it over the past few weeks. This is one of my favorite movies of classic Hollywood. We you know This is the second Billy Wilder film that we've done. In season one, we did Some Like It Hot. So Brad, I have to ask you, first of all, had you ever seen Double Indemnity before we watched it for the podcast? Well, I hadn't. Um, I, I had heard of it. I knew that it was an early film noir um, example. But honestly, Bob, having watched it now, I am so surprised that I hadn't seen it before. And like when I think about the word classic film and all that it connotes, this is a classic film. Hmm. Y- you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those films that doesn't kind of get mentioned in that first group of all-time Hollywood classics with the Citizen Canes and the Casablancas and Gone with the Wind. And yet, I don't think I've ever met anyone who watched this movie and didn't like it. Yeah, I it's a spectacular movie. And honestly, it's a much better movie than Gone with the Wind. Honestly, I would put it up there with Casablanca as like, these are some of the best movies of the 1940s. Well, and I think one of the things that connects those two movies, Brad, is they both have just incredible scripts. Billy Wilder is, I think, one of the most underrated directors in Hollywood history, but no one has ever left him out of the conversation of potentially being the best screenwriter of all time. And we saw it with Some Like It Hot and how quick and witty his his dialogue can be. And you see it again in this movie. And there's moments where it's really hard edged and cynical. But then there's also these great dialogue exchanges between characters. And Billy Wilder really, really shines as a screenwriter with this movie. Yeah, well, I mean, I've said this before about older films. And, you know, this isn't always the case. Uh, You know, what I'm about to say isn't always true because there was bad films made back in the 40s and 50s. And, you know, that's fine. But 
back in the day, before you had all this technology to really flash and wow and pop on the screen, the the way that you kept people's attention was with good, witty, smart dialogue. And unfortunately, I, ju- I just don't think you get that quite as often in modern film because it's not quite as necessary. You're, you're able to enhance other parts of the film, which is great. And I love those other parts of film. And, you know, I'm glad that the film industry has come as far as it has. But there is something inside of me that craves the type of dialogue that I feel like you more often find when you watch things with Cary Grant and Humphrey Bogart and apparently Fred McMurray. (laughs) That's right. Well, and one thing I want to say before we move on into our favorite segment here, Brad explains, is that I think another reason for the dialogue being so good and so witty and so snappy is that it kind of had to pull double duty. Like it not only had to fulfill all the functions that dialogue normally does, but we're dealing with a time in Hollywood history that we talk about the Hayes Code. And that's essentially the the film censorship board that was still in place in the late 1930s all the way until the 1960s. And films had to be reviewed for their content. And so screenwriters really had to come up with clever ways to introduce kind of double entendres, like things that the characters were talking about that we all know what they really meant, but they couldn't quite get away with saying things explicitly. And this movie is, I think, one of the best examples of a movie kind of ducking or getting around the laws of the Hayes Code to convey something that they weren't quite allowed to say. And I think that's really one of the areas where Billy Wilder shines the most with this script. But before we get any further... Brad, I don't know how many people in our audience will have seen this movie. If you're into classic film, I'm sure you have. But I think for a lot of people listening, this might be their first exposure to the movie Double Indemnity. And so we're going to move into our segment, Brad Explains, where Brad breaks down the plot of a movie that he's just seen most of the time for the first time. And we have the treat of that happening today. So, Brad, can you explain with full spoilers what happens in the movie Double Indemnity? The film Double Indemnity is about a insurance salesman named Walter Neff who makes a call on a client who is about to let his auto insurance lapse, and he arrives at the house and finds the wife at home alone, uh, Phyllis Dietrichson. Uh, And he's soon drawn in by her sultry charm, and she involves him in a plot to take out a life insurance policy on her husband, who is, you know, apparently a cruel and uncaring man. And they decide to finish him off, to kill him and get the insurance policy, and then they're going to run off together and, you know, be wildly in love. And as the film goes on, you see uh, Walter fall into more and more paranoia. The the claims manager at his insurance company, the guy who checks in and makes sure that the deaths are legit and the insurance claims are what they seem to be, is a man named Keyes, and he always talks about this little man in his stomach that just tells him when something is wrong and he needs to investigate further. And so Neff has to essentially draw up a policy without the husband knowing it has been drawn up on him and get the man killed in a way that isn't, you know, suspicious enough to cause his claims manager to get suspicious about it. And then, you know, they can get the money. And then in addition to all of this, there is something in a, a lot of insurance policies called an, a double indemnity clause, which is basically really specific ways of dying or having an accident that will pay out double on the insurance policy. So there's a double indemnity that if the, the husband dies on a train, it'll pay out $100,000 instead of $50,000. 
So they kill the husband, they frame it so that he falls off of a train, and eventually the 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 boss keys figures out that it was a murder, and he eventually pins it on the daughter of Phyllis and her husband, uh, on her boyfriend. At the end of the film, uh, Walter Neff realizes that Phyllis has no intention of running away with him, um, that she might even off him as well. And so he goes into Keyes' office and offers a confession and recognizes that he is the one who killed the the husband. And it's it, that, that's it. There you go. Yeah. And Brad, I think it even goes a little bit further than that in terms of how kind of dark and cynical it gets. I mean, both of the main characters likely die. We watch Walter actually goes over to Phyllis's house and shoots her dead because he realizes that she's either going to find a way to bump him off or implicate him when she gets on the stand. And so she's dead. He gets shot by her before she dies and he's bleeding out. He he records this confession and is basically caught by his boss keys in the office uh, because he was trailing blood. And then the guy who operated the elevator called keys and the the movie ends in this really kind of ambiguous way where He's probably going to bleed out and die. If he doesn't, you know he's going to go basically to the gas chamber and die. It's a really dark movie, and it's not the kind of uplifting ending that you're used to seeing in a 1940s movie. And it really sparked this genre called film noir. And we're going to get into talking about what a film noir is later, but I think one of the first things that you can say about it is that these kind of movies, they always feature these sort of hard-boiled, cynical protagonists who are maybe up to no good. They usually feature a femme fatale, you know, a woman who is obsessed with murder in some way. And they have this really sort of pessimistic, I, I, I guess I would almost say like nihilistic kind of tone to them where, you know, maybe people get their comeuppance, but it's also like at, at what cost? And this is, this is a really great example of that because as you watch this movie, you really just get a sense that most of the characters in this movie are just kind of sleazy people that do sketchy things. <laughs> and there's really no clear-cut protagonist in the film. Yeah, and and I think for me the the more I, you know, reflect on this movie, I really do and th- this is going to be a really bad pun. I really do think that Keys is the key to this film. As as a character, he's introduced as this kind of harsh, mean, crotchety old claims investigator who doesn't find any good in anyone. And, you know, even Walter says, he's like, you know, I've worked with him for a long time, but I know that he's actually got a heart of gold behind that tough exterior. And so you kind of realize like, oh, this guy's actually kind of a good dude. And by the end of the film, you realize that Keyes really is the moral center of this movie, that he believes in the goodness of Walter Neff. He is the one who defends him to his boss saying, no, there's no way Walter could have done this. He told me that he sold the insurance policy. It was all on the up and up. And I can personally vouch for him as a human being. And and like that gave the film so much emotional weight to me that that makes you so much more disappointed in Walter for what he did. Well, and, and I think part of it, too, is that you have such a great actor filling this role. It's Edward G. Robinson, who had been super famous throughout the 1930s, but had always been typecast in kind of gangster roles. He became really famous with this movie called Little Caesar uh, in the early 1930s. And at this point, you know, he was getting kind of advanced in age to be a leading man. And he realized he needed to start taking smaller roles. 
he really didn't feel super comfortable about making the transition into supporting roles. And it actually said that uh, in order to convince him, they basically paid him the same salary as both the leads for way fewer days of shooting. And he said that made it a lot easier for him to make the decision. <laughs> but I think that having that, that would that would make it a lot easier for me too, Bob. <laughs> But I think that having an actor of his caliber in that supporting role, it almost kind of elevated the role to to like a third lead. Because like you said, the, the relationship between him and Walter Neff is this really kind of father-son dynamic. And it's a very tragic sort of relationship because, you know, you see at the end of the film that Keyes finds out that he was wrong all along. And you see the, the kind of love that he had for Walter Neff playing out. And I think having Edward G. Robinson in that role elevates that sort of emotional weight to being just as important as the main relationship between, you know, Walter and Phyllis. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that if you don't have keys in that in this movie and if he's not played by somebody as talented, there's just no chance that you care so deeply about Neff. And honestly, you you kind of find yourself recognizing that Neff made a mistake that he kind of dove in with this woman who he didn't realize was up to no good. And you see him pay the price for it. And you kind of wonder, kind of like when you're watching the prequel movies uh, for Star Wars and you get to episode three and it's like, you know that Anakin is going to do the wrong thing. You know he's going to turn into Darth Vader. And yet I think that the brilliance of episode three is that you still find yourself, I, I still find myself, you know, watching it for the 30 millionth time going, oh, Anakin, don't do it. Like, what if you just don't make the wrong decisions? And I, I think that that's what you have in this movie. And it, it's it's just a great place to be as a viewer where you know the outcome. Like from the very start of the movie, Neff is narrating, you you think you got the right man, but you didn't. I'll tell you you got the wrong man because you got hit, you got the boyfriend and it was actually me. You were pretty good in there for a while, Keys. You said it wasn't an accident. Check. You said it wasn't suicide. Check. You said it was murder. Check. You thought you had a cold, didn't you? All wrapped up in tissue paper with pink ribbons around it. It was perfect. Except it wasn't because you made one mistake. Just one little mistake. When it came to picking the killer, you picked the wrong guy. You want to know who killed Dietrichson? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff. Insurance salesman. 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. And so you know it right away, and you know he's going to do it the whole movie. And yet because Keyes sees goodness in Neff, you're, you're wanting Neff to make the right decision despite the fact that you know he's going to make the wrong decision. And I, I think that, that that only really brilliant movies are able to do that. Well, and again, that speaks to how brilliant Billy Wilder is as a screenwriter. And I think what makes it even more brilliant, Brad, is that he's not presented as a guy that was totally good who got sucked in by this evil woman. Like, she clearly had a plan. She clearly wanted to bump off her husband. But I think what's, what makes it even more great is that from the very beginning, you kind of get the sense that Walter is a little bit sleazy, too. Like, when he first oh, yeah. when he first shows up to Phyllis's house to deliver these, these insurance papers, he just openly starts flirting with this married woman. 
And you actually get some incredible dialogue in that scene where it's like the sexual tension is off the charts. These people are clearly into each other. And you get that great exchange about uh, she basically says, like, hey, you, you, you're moving a little too fast here. And he says, how fast was I going, officer? And they have this exchange about him going over the speed limit. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 830? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. 8.30 tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. You'll be here, too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. There's tons of double entendre. There's tons of stuff that's implied. But what it really goes to show is that Walter, even though he's he's the guy telling the story from his perspective, he's the quote unquote protagonist that doesn't make him a hero. That doesn't make him a guy that is completely free from sin, even at the start of the movie. Yeah, Bob, I I'm right there with you. I will say that that first opening scene he is so sexually aggressive in that scene. Oh, my gosh. I was just like, man, this is just going to be another example of, like, old Hollywood abusing women and being sexually harassed, you know, sexual harassment and all this stuff. And, like, it's not that that didn't happen, because I think it did. But once you start to know the character that Barbara Stanwyck plays a little more, you're kind of like, okay, no, she's like, she is just as much in this trying to use Walter as he is just trying to have sex with her. Um, if, if anything, in a weird way, he he's trying to have sex with a married woman, which is bad. And she's trying to, A, kill her husband and B, make a lot of money off of it. So I don't know if that makes her worse or not. But, like, they're both really bad people oh, yeah. in a certain sense. And what's really great is that at, at no point in the movie, until maybe the very end, do you get the sense that, like, one of them is more evil than the other. Because even as she kind of tries to feel him out of, like, hmm, I wonder if he would kill my husband. It's kind of like this dance that they play. He starts to figure out what she's doing, and he calls her out on it. And she's like, no, 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 I'll totally drop it. I won't discuss it again. And then all of a sudden, he's like, well... You know, I have always wondered about what it would be like, how I would kill somebody and, and what it would be like mm -hmm. to try to get away with it. So then he's the guy that's advancing this idea. And they really do like their their terribleness plays off of each other. And I think that only goes to improve, you know, the character building that Billy Wilder is doing. Right. Well, and honestly, I, I think it's an example of how you might have somebody who never would commit murder in their life. But when they're around the wrong person or the wrong group of people, they almost egg each other on to doing things that they never imagined that they would have done in their normal life. And, and I love that you kind of get a picture of that when Keys comes to Neff and he's like trying to pitch him on taking a pay cut to become a claims man instead of a salesman. And he has this great line about a claims man being a doctor and a bloodhound and a confessor. And, you know, it's this great line. He's really pitching. He He's trying to sell the salesman 
<laughs> on a new job. And it's a, it's a brilliant scene. And I think you have a moment in that scene where Neff looks at Keys and you can tell that he's gone so deep in with Phyllis that in another life, if he hadn't delved into this evil side of himself, maybe, you know, sure, he was a bad guy, but maybe this would have been an opportunity for redemption to move forward with his life, to try a new hat on, try a new set of clothes on, see if it fits. But because he has met this person, he's met Phyllis, and he's dove headfirst into this pool of darkness and murder and theft and all these terrible things, he can't move forward with another avenue in his life. And so I, I, there's something about that scene that you're just like, man, you just see what life could have been for Walter if he had never shown up at the Dietrichson household. Absolutely. Well, and Brad, I kind of want to shift a little bit into talking about this script that Billy Wilder co-wrote with the mystery writer Raymond Chandler. The story for Double Indemnity was actually based off of a short story that was written by this guy, James M. Kane. Billy Wilder had a writing partner that he wrote with all the time. Charles Brackett said that he didn't want to make this movie because he didn't like how sordid the subject matter was. So Billy Wilder needed a new writing partner. He wrote the script with Raymond Chandler, and they absolutely hated each other. They disagreed on everything. Wilder said that when Raymond Chandler showed up, he was like in a 12-step alcohol recovery program. And by the time they finished writing the script, he was like a raging alcoholic again. So these two guys hated each other. But they recognized what each brought to the table. And one of the things that I really love is how they both contributed to the dialogue in this movie. Like you have these great wilder touches of some really clever, witty lines. But then you also have like some great hard boiled detective type lines, even like at the end of the movie when Walter shoots Phyllis. And the last thing he says is just bye bye, baby. Like it's just that there's something so classic about every line in this movie and I think you really do get the best of both worlds. You get that great, witty, cynical, wilder dialogue. And then you also have those great detective novel type lines that you hear Walter and Keyes say. Did you have any other lines that you thought like really stood out or anything? Oh, man. It, I do find it hard with these movies to keep track of all the lines because there's so many good ones that I'm like, wait, what? Did, he said something about this or? Yeah. There there are, there's so many good lines, but even like the, the kind of little throwaway, like one-liners that they put in the movie, I laughed out loud at a couple of them. Like there's one right at the beginning when Walter shows up to the house and the maid tells him, you know, yeah, you can go sit in there, but they keep the liquor cabinet locked up. And he's like, that's okay. I always carry my own keys. <laughs> and then like later on in the movie, they bring this guy down from Oregon who was a witness to, you know, seeing who he thought was Mr. Dietrichson on the back of the train. And they're kind of interrogating him. And it's all on the insurance company's dime. And right before he leaves, he's like, well, I don't think I'm going to go back to Oregon yet. There's a there's a really good osteopath in town that I want to see. <laughs> Edward G. Robinson's like, osteopath, huh? Well, don't put her on the company card. And it's like very clear yeah. that he thinks this guy's going to go see a hooker. Like, yep. there, there's so many just little witty things that they're not necessary, but they just help build out the world of the movie so well. Yeah, you find yourself in the midst of it believing that everyone in the world lives like these people do, which is which is funny because they're very clearly caricatures of real human beings. Like, nobody actually acts like Keys or Neff. And yet, the, these witty one-liners and the, the way that they're just cynical about the world draws you in. And like you said, Bob, it's brilliant world-building. Absolutely. And you mentioned Mrs. Dietrichson, and I think it probably is time we talk about our two leads and their acting performances. 
Barbara Stanwyck plays Phyllis Dietrichson, who is maybe the most famous femme fatale in movie history. And for good reason, because she is just incredible in this movie. At the time this movie was made, she was uh, the top grossing Hollywood actress of the prior year. And so when she read the script for this movie, she was like, I don't know if I really want to do a role like this. This could be really damaging to me. And Billy Wilder, in his typical kind of bully way, was like, are, are you an actress or are you a mouse? And so she was like, all right, I guess I'll do the part. <laughs> and it ended up. I don't want to be a mouse. Exactly. It ended up being her, obviously her most famous role. And I think she knocks it out of the park in this movie. Yeah, I think from the very start, you can tell that she is in control of every room that she is in. Like, like as a character, she has so much swagger and confidence and almost like this quiet braggadociousness of like, I know who I am, I know what I want, and I'm going to get it. The way that she sits at the very start of the film and her, she's like kind of swinging her leg out in front of her and the anklet is right there and he comments on it and she makes sure to wear that again the next time he comes. Like you can just tell that she is in full control of herself, what she wants, where she's going to go. And so when it finally cracks at the very end of the film and she shoots him and can't shoot him a second time and he kills her, you're just kind of like, oh my gosh, like it's almost like you're on this wild roller coaster ride of like, what is she going to do? Because she's very clearly a psychopath. Well, and I think one of the things about her that is so interesting is that she is so shameless at the beginning of the film, like not even knowing who this insurance salesman is, not even knowing that she's going to rope him into this murder plot, like in front of her maid, she she shows up in a towel and nothing else. She's flirting with this guy that comes to the door. Everybody knows who she is. She she's She doesn't love her husband like she's an opportunist. And I think that really sets the stage for the rest of the movie, because as these plot twists kind of come to light, it totally makes sense that she would do stuff like that. It totally makes sense that she would be sleeping with her stepdaughter's boyfriend and maybe trying to rope him into this somehow. All of these things continue to stack up. And like, yes, she's a terrible person, but you also just like Walter Neff, like you signed up for that. We were we were drawn in by her allure of how shameless and kind of brash she is, and kind of along with Walter, like we as the audience get our comeuppance for getting involved with somebody like that. Yeah, and I, I think that her daughter, well, her stepdaughter, Lola, she is like the canary in the mine shaft, if you will, that like from the very moment you actually meet Lola, that's the first time where you go, there's something off about Phyllis's story. Because she she talks about how her husband is mean and kind of a drunk and gets angry with her. And then the first time you meet him, he's mean. He's, you know, he's not nice to her. And you're like, okay, yeah, her story is kind of verified. Her husband's kind of a jerk. But the thing is, she she comments a few times that her stepdaughter is kind of lousy and and not trustworthy and just makes stuff up. But from the very first time you meet Lola, you go, huh, something's off. Phyllis's story isn't quite stacking up and she ends up being the one that really helps Walter realize like, yeah, Phyllis is the one who actually killed her original mom, you know, Dietrichson's first wife, and that she forced her way in to get married and now she's she thinks that she killed her dad and and Walter's like, holy crap, I am in so much further than I thought I was going to be. 
And that's our segue, Brad, into talking about Fred McMurray. I want to get your thoughts before we go to the break. He is our main character. He is the one who is narrating the film through his eyes as we're seeing the whole world of Double Indemnity. How did you think Fred McMurray did in this movie? Oh, my gosh, dude. I I, I struggled at the very start because you could tell that he's just a womanizer. And I really wasn't enjoying that first scene with Phyllis. Uh, But as the movie went on, I just think he has a smoothness about him that is amazing. And and honestly, I think that these movies, the the film noir genre, part of the reason they're so famous is because their protagonists are so, so cynical about the world. And yet, I think one of the reasons I like Walter Neff as a character is because Fred McMurray doesn't choose to play him as a crazy, cynical, doesn't believe anything is real in the world. As much as it's probably more about sex than about love, he definitely portrays himself as a man who is falling head over heels with this idea of being with Phyllis Dietrichson. And so he he's not your typical cynical private eye that doesn't think anything good is out there. He's someone who falls in love with a woman on a whim almost, and he kind of gets burned because of it. And, and I like him because of that. Absolutely. It's a very different dynamic than if you'd had like a Humphrey Bogart in this movie. You know, Bogart had one of those faces that just kind of looked like it had been worn down by years of living in the real world. Fred McMurray's like a baby face. You know what I mean? And he had made his bones in Hollywood by being an, a star of like really light family oriented comedies. He became one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. And then he took this role because uh, his contract was expiring with Paramount. And normally they would have advised him against it, but he was playing hardball with the company. And so Paramount was like, let's let him take this role. It'll ruin his career and then we won't have to pay him any more money. And it had obviously the opposite effect. But I think that casting somebody like McMurray in this role really works to the benefit of the movie because he's not the kind of guy that's like a Bogart, worn down and just skeptical of everything in the world. He's a guy who's, you know, for for lack of a better term, he's like a regular guy. He works in an insurance office and he's seen enough of these kind of bogus claims come in that he has a healthy sense of skepticism. But it's not really until he gets caught in this sort of web of murder and deceit and lies that you really see the extent of of how bleak his worldview comes to be. And I think having this sort of like baby faced, good looking guy in the part really brings that home. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it, Bob. If you had Fred C. Dobbs as the insurance salesman, like it just it just would be too harsh. It would be too over the top. And like you said, I honestly, if I had to describe Neff at the start of the movie, he's an insurance salesman. He makes good money. He's, you know, and this is more of a dream. I don't think this is actually the best that that the world has to offer. But like, you know, he's he's on top of the world. He can womanize all he wants. He's got the money he needs. He gets to travel like this is in a certain way a perverse American dream. And so, you know, that like you said, that baby face, the way he plays the character is being kind of eager and suave and confident. I just I really, really think that Fred McMurray had the best performance out of anybody in this movie. Well, Brad, I think this is a good note for us to press pause. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about Billy Wilder, the director. You know, we've talked about the writer, but I want to talk about his direction in this film. I want to talk about the themes of the movie. What makes this a film noir? What is a film noir? And then we're going to kind of talk about, you know, the the legacy of Double Indemnity. But before we get to that, let's press pause here. Let's try this old granddad 114. What do you say? Let's get to it. 
Hey, everybody, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, then you know that I am a huge nerd when it comes to movies. But the question is, what are you nerdy about? What is a thing that makes you nerd out more than anything? Is it video games? Is it D&D like Brad? We know you have something in your life that you like to be nerdy about. And for the inner nerd in all of us, there is a place called Loot Crate. It's a subscription service that sends all kinds of different bundles directly to your door with different kinds of themes. If you're a fan of the Robots Radio Network, you may want an Elder Scrolls-themed box. You may want a Fallout box, a Marvel box. There's gaming, there's anime, there's tons of different subscription themes that you can sign up for at Loot Crate. The great part about a Loot Crate box is that they try to give you a variety of things each month that actually have more value in the box than what you would get buying each thing separately. And the best part is that we, as a part of the Robots Radio Network, are excited to be able to offer you a 15% off your first order with Loot Crate If you're interested in checking out Loot Crate, make sure you use the link in our show notes. Go to the episode that we're listening, the show notes there, and click the exclusive link that we have there. And make sure you enter the code ROBOTSRADIO at checkout. You have to do both things. Click the link and enter the code ROBOTSRADIO for 15% off your first purchase from Loot Crate. Alright, so today we are checking out Old Granddad 114. Now, if you've been following our podcast for any length of time, you've probably guessed that the 114 means that it is 114 proof, and you would be correct. What? I know. This comes from the Jim Beam Corporation. Uh, we, last week, we tried the Old Granddad Bottled and Bond. Back in Season 1, we tried Old Granddad 80 proof. We were not fans of either of them, but we keep getting people telling us, you know, when we tried the 80 proof, people were like, you got to try the 100 proof. It's so much better. Now we've tried the 100 proof and everyone's like, well, wait till you try 114. So we said, listen, I don't think we're going to like this, but we're going to do the 114 so that we stop having people tell us that we're drinking the wrong whiskey. Somehow, if we like give this a bad score, th- their old granddad's going to suddenly come out with like, but wait, 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 there, there's this 137 <laughs> cask that, that we really think would be good. It's, it's really over the top. It, it puts the 114 to shame. This whiskey is pretty limited in its distribution. You can't find it in Ohio. You really have to go to Kentucky to get it anywhere around where we live, Brad. Honestly, after the first two expressions of Old Granddad, I'm a little bit leery, but I'm kind of excited. It'll be fun to get into it. Now, Old Granddad is a high rye mash bill, meaning that we know bourbon has to be 51% corn to be called bourbon. But after corn, the next highest used grain in the mash bill is rye. And so, Brad, I expect us to have quite a bit of that rye spice. It's actually 27% rye. But let's get into nosing it. What are you picking up on the nose of this Old Granddad 114? Honestly, it's very alcohol forward. Yep. Um, but once you kind of push past that a little bit, it it has, man, it, it has a little bit of vanilla. It, it has some of that rye kind of spiciness. Um, but there's also, I this might sound weird, but it, it almost smells kind of like hay. Hmm. That that musty kind of old feel to it yeah. uh, that I, I haven't noticed on other versions of Old Granddad. Yeah, it definitely has almost like a raw grain smell to it uh, that's, that's pretty prominent. I actually didn't think this had much of a nose to it, and I'm kind of surprised because, you know, typically as we increase in proof, we're usually increasing in age a little bit too. I don't know if that's the case here, um, but I was expecting something a little bit more complex And all I really got was a huge blast of ethanol on the nose, a little bit of spice, uh, and it's kind of like your typical bourbon-y or rye spices. 
but it also smells you get that that rye comes forward in an almost sour type way like it's uh it's like a rye bread there's like a yeastiness to it and it smells like like just milled grain it's it's very i don't know what the word i would use to describe this is but it's almost like rustic smelling you know what i mean like it smells like yeah. bread it smells like yeast it smells like grain and then it's just like here's a bunch of ethanol to go with it I don't find this to be a really satisfying nose. I don't know. Are you enjoying the nose, Brad? No. I, I mean, I will say there's not a lot of richness or depth to this 114 proof that you would, like you said, Bob, when you get up above 110, 115 proof, you start to expect a depth and a richness to it that I'm not getting here. Even even as I look at this, the color doesn't even look that deep. No compared to other things that you get at this proof. Yeah, totally agree. I'm going to give this a four on the nose. Um, I'm going to give it a five. I, it's right down the middle average for me. All right, well, that takes us to the taste, so hopefully this improves from here. Let's give it a sip. Wow, uh, Bob, I'm... Yeah, that's a that's a whiskey... Yep. Um, yep. It has alcohol in it. Oh, it sure ha it sure has alcohol. Uh, and then on top of the alcohol is some more alcohol. Um, honestly, the the more I taste bourbon, the more you do get to recognize like a front of the tip taste, a middle of the tongue taste, a finish taste, and, and like a good whiskey can balance and yet change in all those areas. This whiskey. It tastes like ethanol on the tip of my tongue. On the middle of my tongue, it has a corn sweetness to it. And then it goes down my throat and it tastes like ethanol. Yeah. Is, is that about the experience you had, Bob? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're, you're totally right, Brad. As we sip some of these whiskeys, I've, I've started to realize that there's kind of like two or three basic umbrellas of bourbons. And one of them is this sort of like high rye, unsweet harsh grainy mash bill and you get it in these old granddads you get it a lot in four roses and i've just found that i don't care for whiskeys that taste like this and this is no exception to that brad i don't know if you would compare this to a four roses but that's kind of the same thing i get it's it's really thin for a 114 there's a little bit of spice and there's that alcohol tingle throughout it's just alcohol all the way through and I found that that sour note from the rye on the nose carried through as well. It's it's not a pleasant rye f uh, flavor. It's just this really sort of sourdough, almost yeasty bread. It doesn't have much flavor to it. I let it sit for about five minutes. I've taken two sips of this now. And it has a little bit more character after about five minutes. It really kind of develops some more sugar. But again, it took five solid minutes to just like calm down in my glass enough to be palatable. I do not like this. I'm going to give it a four again on the taste. Man, Bob, I'm trying to come up with something for this and I just can't. It's a three on the taste for me. I, <laughs> the, there's not much going on here. You know, I, I've read a few different reviews of this and uh, it seems like it's pretty universally praised that there's a lot going on. And I don't know if I'm just doing something wrong. Um, but I feel like I've drank enough barrel-proof whiskey at this point to know what I'm doing when it comes to high-proof whiskey. This one doesn't have a lot of flavor. You know, I, I swish it around at the front of the tongue a little bit, but even as I finish and I try to look for notes, I try to find anything on there, 
even just something, you know, some sort of spice or some sort of anything. It's just so overwhelmed by the ethanol that any flavor I find isn't really worth finding. Yeah, Brad, I totally agree. I actually found myself about halfway through scoring this saying like, why am I trying so hard to find good things to say about this? Yes. I think it's be- yeah. I think it's because I've read and seen so many people who love it. And at a certain point, I had to say, like, no, I'm not going to just, like, grade this on a curve anymore. And I have to be honest about the fact that I do not think this is good. And that that takes me to the finish as well. And literally, the only note that I took down for finish was ethanol, just ethanol. <laughs> like, there really is no lingering flavor that lasts on this. It is a hugely alcohol-forward whiskey. The burn going down is prominent. And it honestly, last week we said that it seems like... To get to 100 proof, they just added a bunch more grain alcohol to yep. get to go from 80 to 100. And this time it seems like the same thing. As we've gone up in proof, I do not notice a lot more flavor, a lot more depth or complexity in these whiskeys. And at this point, I think it's just getting harsh. Yeah, I, Bob, it's I, I am not understanding the obsession with this whiskey. I, honestly, it kind of feels like when we reviewed Mellow Corn. Now, granted, Melicorn's in a very different category as far as, you know, that everybody would recognize that's a low-end, cheap whiskey, but a lot of people really like it. This one, I, I don't know what the price is, but I can't imagine it's a super cheap whiskey. And so I'm just going to sit here and go, man, like, for the finish, it's going to be a three for me. Uh, balance, I guess it's well-balanced. It smells like ethanol and corn and a little bit of spice and... It tastes like that, so I guess I'll give it a five on balance. But I, I'm I'm really curious to get to this value score because I, I'm I, I want to know how much it costs. Yeah, so just for me, I gave it a four on finish. I gave it a four on balance. I went fours across the board until I got to value. Now the value on this is is going to be kind of interesting to gauge because again, Brad, it seems like that some people's palates just really appreciate whiskeys like this, and I know I don't. So I'm going to grade it based on that. If you're a big fan of Old Granddad of, of Four Roses, I think this this would be right up your alley. This bottle of whiskey will cost you about $30. So it's not an exorbitant amount of money. And it is kind of like, you know, if you're going to Kentucky, it's not distributed by you. You pick up a bottle. It's a good story. It's actually a really beautiful bottle. One of my favorite bottles in the, the whole of the bourbon world. Um, but Brad, I would never pay $30 for this. And I could list a, you know, just a plethora of whiskeys that I would recommend at $30 before this. I mean, you know, in the state of Ohio, like you can get Weller Special Reserve for cheaper than this. You can get Elijah Craig. You could do a Knob Creek. Like even in the Jim Beam line, there are things that I would recommend over this. I'm going to give this a three on value. I'm right there with you, Bob. I I think that there's so many whiskeys you can get for even $20 that are better than this. There, In our springtime of Swill, we probably had a few whiskeys that I would prefer over this. So yeah, I'm going to give it a three as well. I I think there's something going on here and people seem to like it, but I'm going to have to pass on this and not recommend it. I don't recommend as well. That means that both of us come out to a 19 out of 50 on this. So well below average. I have a feeling that some people are going to write us, Brad, or maybe call in and tell us that they think differently about this. And I would love to hear if if you like this whiskey, I want a description, not just that we're wrong and you like it. But what is it about it that appeals to you? Because for us, it comes across as as sour, as harsh, uh, as too much of an alcohol burn. Do you agree with that assessment or are we completely missing something in this whiskey? So please 
if if you disagree with us, call in, write in, and let us know what it is that you think is good about Old Granddad 114. Yeah, Bob, this might be our Back to the Future take of the in the whiskey world. <laughs> but regardless of that, I I think I'm about ready to move past not not just Old Granddad 114, but any version of Old Granddad. I would much rather talk about the 1944 classic Double Indemnity. Well, Brad, let's get back into it. Right, so that was Old Granddad 114, a whiskey that neither of us recommends and neither of us enjoyed. Let's get back into talking about this movie that both of us enjoy and that I will be much happier to talk about, Brad. Before we left for the break, I said that we were going to get into talking about Billy Wilder as a director. And I think that Billy Wilder is a really underrated director because he also wrote all, you know, all or most of the movies that he made. Uh, I think people give him a lot of credit for being a great screenwriter but kind of infer that like he was using that as a crutch with his direction. And I don't think you can make that argument here. I think this is Wilder at his most kind of Hitchcockian. Like this, this movie reminds me so much of a Hitchcock movie, obviously very different tonally, but the two major themes in this movie are like sex and suspense. And that's a Hitchcock movie. Do you know what I mean? Like everything about this movie is either about the tension of, are they going to get caught or it's about the tension of, are they going to have sex? That is the definition of a Hitchcock-type movie. And I think that Billy Wilder really leans into those kind of directorial tricks. Obviously, we've talked about the sexual tension in the first couple scenes with the leads, but I think it's also really Hitchcockian in the way that you as the viewer are watching this crime play out. You're watching these two horrible people planning to commit murder, And then when it comes time to actually do it, you're surprised to find out that you're like on their side. Like you're kind of secretly hoping they get away with it when they lay his body on the tracks and run back to the car to get away and the car won't start. It's so suspenseful and you don't want to admit it, but it's suspenseful because you're hoping that they don't get caught. And and like that is the definition of a Hitchcock type suspense thriller. In Vertigo, when Jimmy Stewart finds the letter and he's realizing everything that happened. Like, I I feel like you have a moment like that in this movie when Neff is realizing everything that really is happening here. And he, he finally figures out, oh, this is what's actually going on. And so, yeah, I think Hitchcock is a perfect, perfect lookalike for, you know, what is happening in this Billy Wilder film. But like you said, I think that Hitchcock has a weirdness about him that Billy Wilder doesn't have. And so with Wilder, you get the snarky comments, the double entendres, you get those moments of lightness and of laughter that I think allow you as, you know, just as an average moviegoer to engage with the film on a deeper level because it doesn't feel so, so foreign to real life. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I think it does. And I think that that's what really makes Billy Wilder a great candidate for directing a film noir. Now, this is a term that we've used, like, I don't know, probably 20 times already on this episode, Brad. But film noir is really hard to define. It's it's not really a genre. It's more about the style. And yet any movie that that gets designated or gets called a film noir, you do see like certain elements creep back up again and again. So the term film noir, it actually it comes from the French for, for black film or dark film. They're usually characterized by the fact that they have these really harsh lighting patterns that, uh, you know, when you're lighting a scene, you've got like a couple main lights and the one is called the key light. That's where most of the light comes from. And let's say that you're shining a light on somebody's face. The key light is going to create a whole bunch of shadow on the other side of the person's face. Usually what they would do is they would put a second light called a fill light to kind of balance that out. Well, in film noir, they're all about the shadows. They're all about the contrast. So like they're not going to put a fill light in the scene. And so you get these these incredible like silhouettes. You get the uh, the light pouring in through the Venetian blinds that really create these kind of expressionistic visuals in a movie. And then you also have that they tend to have the same themes. There's always like a cynical worldview. There's usually a femme fatale. They're usually about murder. Sex is always kind of bubbling underneath the surface, creating all the tension. I think this is a perfect example of that, because when you think about film noir, it is about as stylized of a movie genre as you can get. And yet somehow Billy Wilder doesn't make it seem like this weird foreign world that we're inhabiting. Like it all seems realistic because of the touches that he brings to it. Yeah, I mean, even when you just look at, you know, the the insurance office that Neff and Keys work in, it just feels like a normal, everyday workplace. And I, I think other film noir, you get these private eyes that are, you know, they're in an office by themselves and they're pondering the meaning of life. And they're, you know, they're, they're it's like this gritty, dark, and it's just unrelatable. It doesn't feel like real life. Whereas in this film, you know, they just have normal office jobs and Keyes has done really well for himself. So he has an office by him by himself and Neff has done pretty good for himself and he shares an office. He's not on the general floor with all the other salesmen. So like there gets there's this sense of normalcy about his life that makes the vortex that is Phyllis Dietrichson so much more enticing for him. You know, it's because he leads this normal life that he's like, man, I have this opportunity to sleep with a nor- with a married woman and it's a chance to kind of spice things up. And, and, and it's it's just so believable. And I think that that believability that he's able to craft, even within such like a highly stylized visual world, it really helps the movie out. And I think Billy Wilder even realized this because they filmed a different ending for the movie. You know, as I was watching this movie, I was like, I don't understand why this movie's ending in the way that it does. And I don't know if you really had this problem, Brad, but like, you know, Walter Neff finds out that Phyllis has been seeing this guy, Nino Zacchetti, her her stepdaughter's boyfriend. And you get the idea that like, oh, he's going to pin it on them. But then he makes this really huge jump to like, well, no, I have to actually kill her. And I'm going to pin it on Zacchetti by calling the cops afterwards. And I'm like, why do you have to kill her? Why are you going back into her house? What happens if you accidentally leave some kind of evidence there? Like, why are you doing this? And then I found out afterwards that because of the sensors that were in place at the time, uh, you actually had to have both of those protagonists shoot each other in a way that could potentially be fatal. The Hayes Code had a really strong belief that people who did things like what they did, criminals, you know, they had to pay. And people who were adulterers had to pay. 
So it makes sense that you see Phyllis get killed by Walter and Walter get killed by Phyllis, you know, if he does end up dying. But the the movie actually went further than that. In the original draft of the screenplay, and they actually filmed the ending and tested it out for audiences, uh, Walter survives and actually goes to prison and gets executed at the end of the movie. And the last scene of the movie is him going into the gas chamber. And you can actually still find like production stills from this scene online. Edward G. Robinson goes to the gas chamber and watches from outside as Walter dies, which is like a a horribly bleak ending to yeah. this movie. But Billy Wilder tested it out. The audience didn't seem to mind the ending, but he actually said, you know what? I don't think we need this, even though they spent a whole bunch of money to craft this scene. He's like, you know, the heart of the movie is this relationship between Walter and Keys. Mm -hmm. And that last scene that we get where we kind of understand what's going to happen to Walter anyway, that's really the ending of the movie. Why don't we just end it there? And I thought that's probably the best directorial decision that he made in the whole movie, because that ending re really would have been completely unnecessary. And and where they choose to end it is kind of like the emotional climax of the movie. And I think it works beautifully. Yeah. And, and Bob, that that kind of brings me to a place where I, I'm I'm ready to give my final score, because this this movie is so, so good that, you know, there's a few issues here or there that I, I wouldn't call this a perfect movie. Um, but for me, it's it's easily a nine and a half out of ten. I, I could watch this movie over and over again. And honestly, I, I'm excited to show it to a few friends who, you know, probably haven't seen it with how old it is, because this is just put plainly. It's a fantastic movie. And, and I really think anybody who enjoys movies should watch this film. You know, I, I think I'm right there with you. This has always been one of my favorite classic films to watch. And I don't know if it's just because of like what's going on in the world the last few weeks and seeing like the dark side of, of human personalities, but something about how sleazy and dark and unredeemable these characters were really affected me this time. And, and I couldn't quite lean into giving it a 10, but I think it's absolutely a nine and a half. It's, it's a phenomenal movie. It's probably the best example of a film noir that's ever been put to film. When the movie came out, it actually was nominated for seven Academy Awards and it didn't win any. And Billy Wilder got so mad because his studio basically threw the movie under the bus. Uh, they promoted a different movie instead, and both of these films were nominated for Best Picture. And by the time Billy Wilder lost Best Director to the guy who who directed the other film, uh, he actually tripped him going up the aisle. Billy Wilder was a super sore loser. But I think in the years since this movie has come out, it's come to be seen as one of the best films ever made. And I absolutely think that it holds up. 75, 76 years after it came out. But Bob, do you want to know whose opinion I want to hear? <laughs> Who's that, Brad? Well, that would be Film and Whiskey Nation, our, our loyal listeners. But if they wanted to let us know what they thought, Bob, where would they find us? Well, that's such a good question, Brad. If you want to write in, call in, tell us what you think about Double Indemnity, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or if you want to give us a call, our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or give us a call on our Anchor.fm page. You can record a voicemail there and let us know what you think about Double Indemnity. Next week, we will be back. We're actually staying in classic Hollywood, Brad. We'll be back with the 1951 classic, The African Queen. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. 